committee room 30. So there we go, everybody. You're very welcome to this afternoon's uh, Executive Office Committee meeting. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody along and just begin by asking for apologies. I don't think, Michael, we've any apologies today. No, we'll see. Okay, so maybe just a few more people to join us as the meeting progresses. Um, item two is Chairman's Business. What I would like to do just formally under Chairman's Business is to welcome John Stewart, uh, to our committee meeting today, who is taking over as the uh, deputy chair of the committee. And uh, we want to obviously extend thanks to Doug for, uh, for his work on the committee over the past year. Um, you know, made good, excellent contributions, really helped the work uh, of the committee and um, was very uh, supportive and helpful uh, to myself with, in the role of chair whenever we met various groups, although we didn't meet too many over the past year because of the pandemic, but we did get an opportunity uh, to meet uh, different groups offline, and he was always very supportive. John, you're very welcome, and we hope that we'll all be very nice to you. We're a very, uh, very nice committee. We're all very uh, nice to each other. I'm sure you will enjoy your time with us. Um, though what, watch out for that Trevor Lund boy. See when no, I'm only one of But you're very welcome, John. Thank you. So look, folks, item three, the draft minutes are on page six of the meeting pack. Are members content that they're a true reflection of last week's meeting? Okay. Everybody seems to be happy enough with that. Uh, item four is matters arising. I don't have any at this stage. Is there anything that anybody wants to raise from last week's meeting? No. Perfect. Look, uh, let's just get into the meat of the meeting, and what we can do then is uh, move to item five, which is an oral evidence session from the community relations in schools, uh, which is under our heading of urban villages and communities in transition. The information is available on page 16 to 29 of the meeting pack, and I'm hoping that we will have with us uh, Lisa Dietrich, who is the director of the community relations in schools, uh, program and also Dr. Emily Stanton, the program manager for the community relations in schools. So if we have both of you on board, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for taking time to join us at the meeting today. Um, what we will do, as I'm sure you've been hopefully updated, is if you could maybe give us some opening remarks on the program and what happens, and then we'll move to members then asking some questions just to get some information. So you're very welcome, Lisa. I think I'll pass it then and you can give us your presentation. Super, thank you very much folks. I'm delighted to, to join you today. I've uh, scripted my introductory remarks because I'm one for going off in tangents and I wanted um, every word to count. So if you forgive me been less interactive, hopefully that'll come in the questions and discussion bit. So thanks very much, as I say, for having us. Um, myself and Emily are here to, to talk about the programme and its impact. And, and the, I suppose, the, the impact of um, delays in funding or the limitations of one-year funding um, opportunities. So as you're aware, Chris is charged with the rollout of the buddy system. It's a commitment in the Together Built in the United Community Strategy. And we've been formally delivering on this commitment since February 2018 through urban villages across the five current locations. Prior to that, Chris had been supporting schools to implement Buddy Up in, in their sharing work um, across the province. Um, the concept of, uh, of Buddy Up is simple. It's how do we build meaningful relationships of trust between children, families and communities 
with the powerful location of schools as the connector and anchor for peace building. Buddy Up is a simple concept, but it's one that requires a great deal of ethos development, trust, confidence and capacity building, and ultimately a whole school community approach, widening the access out and creating the role for an everyday peace builder to emerge. And it seeks to inspire and equip teachers, classroom assistants, parents and carers, as well as the children themselves. This vision rests on the enormous commitment that our children and young people deserve a present and a future that supports the realisation of their true potential, and that that is vastly different from the conflict context that their parents and grandparents live through. It is important to share that the two most resounding pieces of feedback from parents, carers and teachers involved in Buddy Up across many years now is hope and the mantra, we don't want our children growing up with what we had to. That is the ultimate motivator that attracts and creates real potential for the ripples of change to spread out into the community. I would like to share a little bit about how the buddy system was first identified and lifted into government peace strategy, as this will also help build the case for the development of a multi-annual funding model so necessary for tackling complex issues that require generational change, which is what I believe Urban Villages is about. The buddy system spans over two decades now and was pioneered by local principals from two nursery schools located in the heart of the Shankill and the Ardoyne, Edenderry Nursery Schools and Holy Cross Nursery School. Inspired by the signing of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement in 98, both school leaders felt there was something they could do together to help children and families embrace and play a role in the building of peace between their communities. In those early days, it was a courageous task and it continues to be so as we face new yet familiar uncertainties. Chris was invited into this partnership by the schools in 2001 when parents and carers wished to be involved and that message was coming loud and clear. The schools weren't equipped to, to facilitate that so they invited us in. And after nearly a decade of this partnership of three, ourselves with the nursery schools, we were awarded a place in the OFM, DFM and Atlantic Philanthropies Contested Spaces program that ran between 2011 and 14. This multi-annual funding package allowed Buddy Up to be trialled for the first time in some local feeder primary schools, Holy Cross Boys in Glenwood and Wheatfield and Holy Cross Girls Primary Schools. A senior official attended one of the programme days where we had a really large group of parents, which can be very common. There were over 50 in attendance and they were gathered for one of our dialogues whilst the children were playing and learning together with their buddies in W5. The discussion was lively as it always is and having the opportunity to witness this, it, it clearly had an impact on the attending official. We could see that they were surprised and shocked even, clearly motivated by what they had heard, particularly as it was and is counter to the dominant narrative that exists, stigmatizing communities who desperately want peace, security and safety for their families, as we all do. As Professor Colin Knox, who evaluated the Contested Spaces programme wrote, the hope was palpable. Having witnessed this same energy time and time again on his multiple visits out to our programme, the impact and potential of the body system was then recognised and fed directly into the design of the T-Buck strategy and much to the delight of everyone involved. It's important to highlight that this multi-annual funding, if it hadn't been accessed and had that senior official not had an opportunity to witness the impact of the work, a significant and innovative peace building opportunity would have been lost as Buddy Up, even during the COVID-19 crisis, has continued to flourish and have impact. Also important to add that Chris is really fortunate to be co-funded by the Community Relations Council. Had we not been in receipt of this three-year investment, several initiatives that are also seen as pioneering in their field would not have taken root. 
One of those being the Antrim and Randallstown Schools Moving Forward Together, or MFT Partnership, as they're more widely known. That's been operating now for over five years. An independent good relations partnership of 20 schools and other statutory and community partners, paving the way for new learning and potential of replication across the province. And it's an initiative that the Education Authority are particularly excited about. This single year funding model creates weakness and vulnerability, not just in the community and voluntary sector, but also impacts the co-design model itself. It puts additional and non-necessary pressure on groups who work at the grassroots and who are finely tuned to the context and the changes at a community level and therefore the response. In the briefing, I laid out the various negative impacts that delayed communications regarding the issue of a letter of offer had on us, our staff, the organisation itself, and those impacts we are still working through. We are aware from a survey that we conducted just over this last week that similar impacts have been felt by many of the community-led projects also serving urban villages. Almost 50% of groups stated that funding delays negatively impacted their organisational governance, staff and finances. Some reported cessation of services and one group having to stop a service key to the elderly and the housebound. Another preventing the development of a capital project. And as one contributor put it, multi-annual budgets is a necessity. Annual budgets are leading to a shocking waste of money as projects spend a disproportionate amount of time on meeting the administration needs of government rather than actual delivery. The stress it brings on both the frontline staff and project managers is intolerable and quite rightly wouldn't be accepted by government employees. It is true that often those who work in the community voluntary sector experience sector burnout and feel forced to move away from work they are deeply passionate about due to the stresses working for the sector puts on their own family life and well-being. This constitutes a depletion of community leadership and resourcing, particularly at a time when bottom-up approaches are so necessary to create the positive outcomes against complex challenges that often require a long-term or generational change mindset. The co-design model is one very welcome by the third sector and at Chris we've been privileged to work with the urban villages officials and other cross-sectoral projects, the community and the capital projects, but there is much more that we can be doing together. A three-year investment would provide the necessary provision to think well and act well together in the tackling of common needs that disadvantage already severely disadvantaged communities. In April and May, despite the concerns over our organisational capacity, Chris felt it had to respond to the tensions and violence that spilled out across several localities. We are continuing that work and co-designing a multifaceted response to support dozens of schools across urban village areas. Securing timely contracts and or multi-annual investment will create much needed flex for organisations to be equipped to support the good relations work that has been cited by all school principals as needed now more than ever. In the spirit of rowing the boat together, we would urge that further consideration is given to awarding multi-annual funding packages and honouring the social capital and community infrastructure so fundamental to creating lasting change in our communities. Thanks everyone for listening and giving me the opportunity for uninterrupted our time. Um, Emily and I, are, and I are more than happy to take um, any questions that you have. Thank you. Thank you.
you got uninterrupted time there i wasn't able to to interrupt you but thanks very much for that presentation it's been really uh, good to, to, to sort of hear about the the work that you're doing it, it's uh, very valuable uh, and we can see from the information that you provided the, the sort of impact that it's having and the rates that it's having um, I'm not sure, I could be confusing you, and apologies if I am, but I certainly, with my background in youth work, um, I know that certainly, that I know that the, the boards, as they used to be, used to have a form of community relations that was in schools, and I don't know if that's a similar project to what you are involved in, but um, certainly I know that any of the interventions that dictated <laughs> Um, within the school was important, but that rates out into the community and that rates out and an impact into the lives of young people is absolutely critical. And I know that, Lisa, you had written to us uh, and that you're, you're very passionate about the fact that one year funding is really impairing the work that you can do. And maybe what I'll do, uh, although I know you've mentioned it in, in your report, just to give you another opportunity to, to sort of tell me what would having a longer funding stream say for three years what would that enable you to do what would be the real positive benefits of having that extended funding period yeah brilliant question colin so i suppose like anything it's, it's all about strategy building and preparation so for instance we've just recently informed all the urban villages schools that formally we are still around you know and as i said to, to lindsay farrell even if urban villages funding doesn't come around um, again, for us, organisationally, we are committed to those um, communities of need. They're high need, and it's, it's a complete... The access that we have got into those localities now it, it is really, I suppose, hitting home with what our organisational ethos and what our, our value base is. But not being able to, for example, even close a project up well, leaving it hanging, and then planning almost like a dual approach to, to close down but open up and further build that community outreach and build capacity with the staff you know we're still in the throes of the school year and you know those three term times are our busiest um, time of the year now summer is really a developmental period for us where we do a lot of resource development particularly now with the implications of covid we've had to move a lot of our delivery online and how do we recreate the facilitated in you know from your youth work experience you'll know how valuable and critical it is that facilitated dialogue it's much more stagnated online so developing really um resources that can give uh, it, it'll never be the same but worksheets and uh, training up the staff to try and emulate some sort of in-person delivery where the, the children are linked up on Google Classrooms. We need the expertise of the teachers, particularly now, to tell us how best to do that. And I have to say, if it wasn't for the generosity amidst everything they were dealing with of the schools releasing staff to help us co-design some of those programs, particularly the link up element, you know, live streaming into two classes at one stage, our programs would have fallen flat. And, you know, for the sake of a bit, you need time to be creative. I think as an organization, that is one of our key strengths, but no one could have obviously foreseen COVID. And at one stage I thought, okay, Chris is possibly gonna close when COVID hit. You know, we have a long history span of many decades, but the staff, you know, the, the skills in our staff team are incredible. They they went away and developed themselves in-house training to be able to, to continue our work online. And as I say, the feedback from schools is that, particularly with the tensions that have that have blown up, 
you know, that it's something that having a deficit year in terms of good relations and shared education type work, you know, chronic, they, they want and need their children to meet their their, their local neighborhood children, you know, children they're going to see in, in local shops and communities. So, I mean, we just need time to plan. We need time to strategize with schools who are particularly motivated. You know, there's a number of school partnerships that are brand new. Those school partnerships have went from zero to confidence to reach out into their communities, communities that would be heavily stigmatized. And, and I guess what we continue to learn in our work is that there's many voices in the community that aren't been represented. The danger of the single story that emanates from media and, and obviously from, from politics and, and how that pans out often is not representative. And the school is that anchor point for enabling those voices to come in. That is challenging and, and work that schools shouldn't feel like they have to face alone. So it does require a facilitative partner and, and it's complex and it's nuanced and it's not the same, say, in Donegal Road in the village to what it is in the Shankill and Ardoin or Newton Abbey or, or wherever in some of our other locations of work. So, I mean, by the time you get your contract, you you have to, you know, if we didn't plan, like, everything's have a positive mindset, we would have closed everything down to, to make sure that, you know, we're leaving things well and tied off sufficiently. But we don't operate like that. And it, it does put you at risk and it creates, I mean, we, we almost lost our staff. Those relationships would have been gone. I mean, I would have happily jumped back into program work, but that's not and shouldn't be the job now of me as a director. I love delivery, but we need the organization to be robust and to meet the you know, compounding need that is, I suppose, galloping at pace in our communities. Um, I'm off. I'm wondering going off on tangents, as I've said. It, and it, it gives that that sense that to be able to strategize and to be able to to provide some sort of in depth core work, you need to know that you're you're not just t minus eleven months from the funding running out. So you know, and and, and the programs do go in a cycle. That it is it is critically important that you have that end period that maybe is and, and you know if you were just doing a twelve month period you would be preparing for the endings around about sort of month nine month ten but if then suddenly in halfway through a month eleven they give you another year's funding then that just changes the dynamic of the work that you're doing and it's important to have an understanding of how that happens but maybe just for my other question I, and it's a question I used to hate getting asked so my apologies up front for that uh, but. How do you monitor the impact that it's actually the work is having on the young people? How do you measure that? Um, and would you find yourself maybe interacting with people that went through the program maybe five years ago or whatever amount of years ago just to, to try and keep a thread on, on, on the impact of the work? Because unfortunately, a lot of funding is monitored, evaluated. Uh, you know, what's the value for money? So how do you carry out that side of the work? So it's another cracking question, Colin. We're, we're quite geekish when it comes to monitoring evaluation. So I, I'm going to hand over to our resident doctor, Emily, who brings so much new insights and, and um, just expertise to that whole important piece of our work. Emily, do you want to pick up on that question? Yeah. And thank you again for the opportunity to speak to the committee today. It's it's a really an honor. Um, so speaking a little bit about impact, I think, Colin, you're, you're absolutely correct. It is a tricky one, particularly when you're working in, I feel like, peace building or youth work, where it's very difficult to measure 
um, impact and, and particularly in a short time frame. So I think that's, for me, another argument for the multi-year funding stream because impact over three years, you probably have a little bit better sense of, of what that might look like. Um, but I will tell you a little bit about some of our impacts. We have um, had research conducted, uh, both academic research and then sort of our own program-based research. And uh, in 2018, we had some academic research that focused directly on Buddy Up. And that was a wonderful opportunity for us to learn a little bit about particularly what the parents um, got out of their participation in Buddy Up. So we had um, surveys conducted with over 53 different respondents um, at a particular event that we were holding. And they were able to tell us that um, Buddy Up increased their own desire to get involved with cross-community and community relations activities. So 75% of the parents felt that that exposure that their kids were having actually also motivated them to become involved. Um, they really felt that um, because the, the, the program allowed them to, to interact in each other's communities, so they would go back and forth from each other's schools. So that was a really unique aspect. And they were invited to attend uh, alongside. So they were going back and forth on a regular basis um, in and out of each other's neighborhoods. And for them, um, what was really important was that 80% of those parents indicated that made them feel safer in outside of their own community. So entering into the other communities um, area, which would have typically felt a little bit um, uncomfortable or even would never have happened. They 80% they felt safer doing so. So we thought that was a really important one in terms of a behavioral change that could really make a difference in terms of uh, feelings of safety and moving outside of limited kind of geographies. Um, and also one important statistic that we want to mention is that 94% of parents felt that Buddy Up should be widely replicated. So that, at that particular time, Buddy Up was, was a focused in the nursery school. So they were asking that it be replicated at nursery level and very comprehensively so. So that was a really exciting statistic for us to get on that particular piece of research. We've had um, regular research with urban villages, um, looking at sort of streamlined into the outcomes-based accountability metrics. Um, so there, Again, we have you know very good measurements there. Ninety percent um, feeling that the project supported cross-community engagement. Ninety percent um, improving partnership approaches to good relationships between their schools, and again, just ninety percent um, feeling that it improved the, their attitudes to cultural diversity and and opened those up. Um, so those are some of just the the headlines of the impacts that we have. And again, I think. Um, it's the long-term impact. And because Chris is committed to localities in a very wide and deep way, you know, that that's a longer term income or impact rather. Um, and just a wee story about that, just while I can bend your ear a little bit, we have parents who were involved. Gosh, I think they've been involved maybe seven years ago was the initial involvement. We recently did some follow-up research with them and the outcomes of that were extremely exciting to hear because for, for some of those parents, they said it was life-changing. They had developed friendships that were maintained over the course of that whole um, period of time. And that was throughout difficult community tensions like the flags protests, for example, they were able to maintain their relationships and maintain their friendships um, to the extent that one individual said, uh, she now is involved in community relations work herself. She now, um, 
is actively involved in that on a regular basis, and that's her her profession, um, all because of her initial involvement with Buddy Up. So we know it can have a huge impact. Okay, that's that's great. Thank you very much for that. And that's it's actually an interesting take on it that whilst the work is there for the young people, the work is there about developing their skills and their future. That actually the knock on effect that it actually has on the wider family uh, and the parents as a result uh, is something that probably people wouldn't automatically assume from a, a community relations program in schools. So it's it's nice to hear that and and to be able to capture that. Uh, as I'm sure you'll be aware, most of the committee members have. Uh, have an interest and want to ask questions. So I'm going to call John Stewart, who is the new deputy chair today. This is his first meeting, so be nice to him as well. Uh, uh, we'll invite John to ask a question. There, on you go, John. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the kind words. So big shoes to fill in replacing Doug Beatty, but I'll do my utmost for you. Um, Lisa, Emily, can I thank you first of all for the presentation? It really was insightful. Um, I've had the privilege of seeing firsthand some of the great work you do in the schools, and I think the presentation, and then in terms of measuring the outcomes that Emily gave, it just shows just how effective this work is. But I want to say from the outset, I totally support your call for a multi-annual budget. I don't think any organisation or sector would be expected in any normal circumstances to operate year to year not knowing how their staff are going to be funded and having that security, yet alone a sector doing as great a delivery uh, and delivering such good outcomes as yourselves. It's not fair. I don't know why the community and voluntary sector specifically are expected to do it, and it has to end. And if there's anything we can do and I can do, I think we should be doing that for you. Um, I have two points of a can share, two questions. I'm just really keen to get a feel for how the great work you do through the, the Body Up scheme ties in with other excellent work and engagement that goes on in the community, you know, how that all links together and how important you think that it is. And the second point, if I could, just from the presentation itself, there was a um, talking about the impacts of tensions and violence in the community. And I say about the meeting that was hosted in twenty first or sorry, in May um, last month. I'm just concerned, you know, about basically what it says uh, the feedback you were getting from principals about a growing anti-PSNI message, concerns about the type of things young, um, the, the children are bringing into school, the messages they're putting out in social media and the escalation and fear and the fact that one principal talked about walking into the abyss again. I mean, that that is deeply worrying. Um, I just want to get a feeling for, you know, I know you're going to work on that and collectively try to come up with some ways to try to address it, but was there anything that came out of that meeting about what done in the immediate term to start to try and nip the issues that you're seeing? Thanks very much. Thank you, John, and thank you for that supportive commentary around the multi-annual as well. Emily, I'm wondering if I just kickstart briefly about the MFT model and then and pass to you about the, the work we've been doing to link up community um, and capital, ideally, projects in their village areas. So, Again, it goes back to that multi-annual security. So from our core funding from the Northern Ireland, uh, the, yeah, the Community Relations Council, a lot of our work is developmental with the co-design element with school principals at the core. So we've been working really, gosh, for over a decade in Antrim and time, but particularly over the last five years. And I'll make this um, example brief because I want to focus on urban villages. But we had the opportunity to... I suppose to help coordinate, um, invited by the schools on the back of a good relations project we were doing funded by IFI. So we don't see any project as a project in its own right. We like to see it as part of a process. If, if we attach to a community, we attach for the longer term. 
and try and broker that commitment and and, and span that out. So the Moving Forward Together um, partnership in Antrim and Randallstown is 20 schools strong. It's every single school in that locality. It's got community partners who bring in their services for free. And the Education Authority is a fantastic ally. The council has just, they are absolutely critical to the development of that partnership and the confidence building that their support gave those school principals. So we collaboratively designed something from scratch that really is about, you know, joining up services has been, you know, something talked about for a long time and there's been good strides at that. But for us in our work, this was the first chance we got to really from scratch try and build a collaborative model. And if anyone's interested in that example, there's two stages of our good relations and collaborative education model video case studies online from the teacher's perspective from parents from pupils perspective about how that partnership developed because we like to put the schools to the fore we facilitate them to take the leading voice and, and and not be at the forefront of that we think that's really important so we have learned lots of lessons about how to develop and then formalize a multi-sector locality-based partnership and I have to say, if it wasn't for that opportunity to experiment with the schools in those areas who entrusted us with their time, I mean, school leaders, you know, hard to find time to prioritise in something brand new. They, they did it because they've seen the benefit and um, that that brings to their whole locality. So the learning from that has um, armed us really with the ability to think through how do we not just build the capacity with the with the schools so buddy up can be embedded once urban villages finishes we'll always be here to, to try and support in every way we can but when urban villages wraps up how do we make sure that capacity is built in how do we link those schools better to their local community i mean all these things show up in evidence around educational attainment um schools that engage parents well children have much more um, potential of, of achieving in school and um, schools um, attached well to their local community bringing in those services also showing really strong results um, around attainment and common need and working to the same agenda so I'll, I'll bat over to Emily at this stage because again we recently conducted quite a wide ranging um, scoping exercise with the with the local community projects across all of the urban village areas and then we'll get to the, the tension question. So I'll just make it brief. Um, so we conducted a scoping study um, across the urban villages with all of the community partners that are also linked in order that we could both identify um, sort of strategic ways that we can support and work together with the community. Um, so we found all sorts of really interesting ways in which we think that, that can be enhanced in the future, which is, again, part of the the sort of pitch towards a longer term funding allows that to really embed itself well. But one example, which was a really lovely synergy was um, the Colin allotments. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work that they do, but so they were able, we had a parent um, appreciation program at the end of one of our uh, P7 programs called Knowing Me and Knowing You. And so parents are invited to attend. And so we, we, partnered with Colin Allotments and they provided seeds, soil, um, all of the kind of ingredients to enable the parents to make gifts to the children um, as part of a celebration event. So that was a really nice way to, to have the community organization partnering with the school and partnering with us, um, with Buddy Up. So there, there are future examples that we can really um, exploit once, once, you know, we're able to do so. 
uh, the scoping study was fascinating and indicated there was the many ways in terms of reading and, and literacy support, in terms of numeracy support, there's, there's many ways in which our programs can be synergistic using the buddy systems to enhance um, educational attainment, for example, just one example. So we'll leave it there to, in order to move on to the next question, but there's lots of ways we can work together. Yes, yeah, so I mean the rather unfortunate um, series of events over over April, you know, in some localities where, where violence did spill out onto the streets. Um, I guess it was a litmus um, exercise for us, so we invited that meeting with principals and um, schools in another locality in, in um, Newton Abbey. Now we could have went further than that, but we thought we'll, we'll keep it to the forty-eight um, schools because we weren't sure how many would turn up, and we thought, well, if there's dozens that turn up, it's not going to be a, necessarily a supportive space for them all to contribute to that discussion. So, um, I mean, it, it was astounding, the, the level of interest immediately. Um, there's a sense that this is not necessarily support that the Education Authority um, have reached out with, you know, in the immediacy of, of tensions kicking off. I mean, trauma, fear, that, that one um, principle, and we probably will not talk about specifics in terms of feedback, but, you know, that sense of walking into the abyss was the, the dominant message coming out across all those who participated, um, feeling of isolation, feeling that are, are we in the perfect storm of going back into what we all experienced as adults and, and know the long-term implications of that, particularly around intergenerational trauma and even the impact that has on educational attainment and, and you know, quality of life, life outcomes. So... It was a listening exercise, genuinely, but we also asked the principals, is there anything from, from your awareness of, of what is in our capabilities or even things beyond our capabilities that we could partner with others on? What are key things that you think would be would be useful? So that survey has went back out to principals at the minute and we're still collecting the information. But we, we sort of sectioned it off from what we heard from them in two main areas, a programmatic response and a communication response. The programmatic response would look at particularly um, equipping staff better to deal with issues that are very live in the classroom, not even in a personal development and mutual understanding lesson, but in the middle of a maths class, children coming out with all sorts of questions, um, you know, that I won't repeat because they're just very difficult and emotional and staff not knowing how to address address those safely. Schools calling out for counselling support, desperate, desperate need of counselling support, children deregulated, clearly not sleeping since the Easter holidays. Staff um, impacted, worried, concerned. I mean, mostly non-teaching staff, classroom assistants, etc., come from the local community. Do you know, so there's there's certainly a sense of um trauma walking working through the whole school community parents you know um it, again just on the tip of their tongue you know wondering how we we got to this stage again thinking that we were we were well past this and i guess the flammability of the conflict is something that people are terrified about thankfully that has simmered right down but i guess the amygdala that part of the brain is constantly waiting you know to to detect risk again um, so a programmatic response is one that we're looking at, um, even, for example, the idea of looking at a transition programme, which we don't currently have from P7 to, to first year, um, that looks at healthy peer attachments that helps young people to understand 
the workings of their own brain. So it's almost bringing a neuroscience lens to peace building and community relations work, looking at how do we understand our own behaviours and, you know, the wee ones who get maybe excited about what's going on down the end of the road, not wanting to be pulled into it, but but yet and all maybe getting pulled into things. So how to understand peer attachment. And we have a fantastic, I mean, there's many professionals out now around this. I know that our generation program as well with Urban Village is that partnership is, is going to be an incredible boost to the communities. But um, we've been working closely with just an incredible guy um, who's been doing training for us um, over this last year and, and prior to that, who, you know, we're potentially looking at a program directed at pupils with the necessary capacity building element brought in for, for the teachers. Um, the supportive network can't be underestimated as well. So that idea of principals coming together regardless of their own community background or the communities they serve and just feeling like we if we're not part of the solution then are we part of the problem and then what I was what we were quite taken back with um you know where is the good news stories where is the hope in all of this this single narrative dominating media is just absolutely you know pulling the life out of people um you know, community well-being, you know, when, when you see your community represented in certain ways and, and it's only that way, I mean, it just depresses people. So there was a real calling from across the board, like unanimously, about alternative communication and an alternative media project, potentially a lobbying campaign. Um, these are things that we're working out because, you know, once principals say they were acting on this, there might be different reasons why some people can commit to some things rather than, than others. So it genuinely is purely co-design. It's a, it's a new it's a new shift point for us as an organisation because we never really, well, during the flags protest, I mean, we were working very closely in the community with, with the schools and had all sorts of conversations with others. Um, but beyond doing our programme response, we, we didn't think outside the box now. We feel like we're robust enough as an organization to think outside the box and genuinely partner with, for example, youth provision, churches, businesses. How do we get people together under, you know, with solidarity at the core, which doesn't mean people cannot have grievances absolutely around politics and, and cultural, you know, um, you know, events and, and situations that is absolutely there and legitimate but how do we ensure that children and young people and families do not face the trauma and the conflict you know that comes with really highly unsettled um community and political tensions yeah absolutely lisa thanks so much for that i think we could talk about what is a really important subject we could talk about this all day and i can tell yours and emily's passion for this what i'll do is when we touch base with you offline it'd be great to come and see the work again firsthand um and i know we're still in the covid um environment but hopefully we can maybe get something arranged and come and see some of the delivery and get a chat with you if that's okay that would be incredible john welcome it thank you all right, thank, thank you for that, John. Okay, next up, I'm going to ask for Martina to be brought in. And I suppose maybe just, I know, Lisa, it's our bad asking you to come in in one hour and, and talk about everything, but we have another three members that want to talk, and we've got about 15 minutes left. So if we could keep ourselves to, to shorter questions, because I know what it's like when you've got a passion about something, you just want to get it all out there. But um, just I'm conscious that I don't want to have to cut other people's questions afterwards. So I'll pass over to sure. Martina. 
Um, thank you, thank you, Chair, and uh, and thank you, Lisa and Emily, for that. You talked about sectoral burnout in terms of the community sector and the benefits of pulling projects and buddy up with, with other projects. And you said about the Education Authority being excited about the work that you're doing. So I suppose my question is to get a handle and an understanding from yourselves as the role that the Department of Education is playing in supporting the community relations in school. Uh, Chris, sometimes when we're saying that name, Chris, beware, you know, Joe and Jane public out there might think you're talking about a person. So um, I think when we're talking about the community relations in school, it's it would be good to know the support, financial support and others that you've received from the Department of Education. Um, I suppose we don't, Martini, we don't receive direct funding from the Department of Education. We did now for 28 years, up until 2010, when the school's community relations program was pulled. Um, so we don't receive any direct funding from them. All of our funding comes from uh, government sources, Central Good Relations, Community Relations Council, um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Reconciliation Fund and others. Um, and have you made any applications under any other um, streams from the Department of Education? Because given all that you're saying about all of this stuff happening in school, the way you're talking about it, the kind of trauma that seems to be at times materialising in school, then surely the Department of Education couldn't ignore um, all of that. No, and in fairness to the department, I suppose, Martina, we haven't reached out directly with them. We have, you know, been working in close enough uh, partnership with the Education Authority, but particularly over this last few years, we're now a member of that stakeholder reference group for the mainstreaming of shared education. So our work with the Education Authority is about partnership. It doesn't necessarily involve uh, funding or, or income generation, but genuinely we know and have been recognised to have significant learning in areas that are recognised as limitations. Um, with the edu you know, with say for example, shared education, particularly that of addressing um, controversial or sensitive issues in the classroom, particularly that of community connections, that's something that there's a real limited understanding of, and it just happens to be one of our organisational strengths. So, I mean, we're delighted as an organisation to be in a place to work in partnership um, with the Education Authority, but I, th I think your question has landed rightly on, on, a, on a, something we need to take on board, which is to reach out directly with the with the department themselves. So that's an action that we, we can take forward from this meeting. Yeah, because it would be like if all that's happening in the classroom and if something, whether it's sensitive being said in the classroom or something that's causing potential trauma or, or whatever else, or a child is coming into school with some notions in their head. Like you would imagine that the schools, the teachers, the principals, the classroom assistants, that they would be all collecting and collating this information as well and relaying that on to the Department for Education. So um, I think if there is any takeaway uh, from listening today and from, from your discussions, uh, I would highly recommend that. But I'm conscious of what the chair said about time and there's only 15 minutes left. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks for that, Martina. If I could ask next for Trevor Lund to be brought up into the uh, spotlight and we'll get a question from Trevor. Okay, sure. Thanks very much, uh, Lisa, Emily. <clears throat> I do admire the work you do and thanks for your presentation, your enthusiasm and commitment just shines through and I think it's wonderful. Um, I'm looking at the, 
the, the list, a sample list of programs that you're involved in, and uh, every school, like each school, and TBUC and so on. Um, and the three of them are to do with uh, shared education. Uh, obviously, a big thing and a big one of your main platforms, I'm sure. Uh, doesn't mention integrated education anywhere. Do you do work with the integrated schools? We do, do, Trevor. I'll bat to Emily. She's more succinct than me. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, thank you for the question, Trevor. We do work with integrated schools, quite a number of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, we also work with Irish medium schools in, in addition to that. So we, we cover both maintained, controlled, <clears throat> integrated and Irish medium sectors. And actually, um, special schools have been involved with CRIS programs as well. So we really try to pride ourselves on working a- across the, the range of different sectors that the education system um, provides there for us. Um, and I suppose, you know, we we would welcome all opportunities and um have had really successful partnerships um, between uh, integrated schools and and controlled schools and maintained schools. So so really, um, while that might seem a little bit unusual, it it has worked really well, and we found great openness um, amongst you know all of the different sectors that we yeah. work with. Okay, so I mean, integrated schools would probably be a, a pretty good example of where you, what you're trying to achieve. And if you buddy an integrated school with any other type of school, it can only be beneficial, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a quick comment. I think along the way you mentioned Eden Derry School. Is, is that up in Tennant Street in Belfast? It's Lanark Way now, Trevor. So they used to be in the same sort of building as Glenwood Primary School. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now over this last, I think three years ago, they moved to a brand new site on Lanark Way, which is amazing. Um, but then, of course, they were in the, you know, the cold face of, of the tensions and, and the worry around the building and all of that mm-hmm. that came, um, yeah. you know, back the other month. Now, the only reason I asked is from my 10 years in the Education Committee before I came to this one, um, and Eden Dairy School actually presented twice to the Education Committee, and I went up to see them. and. The, I think from memory, the head, head mistress, head principal at that time was uh, Betty, Betty somebody. And Betty would be furious at me for not being able to remember her surname. But uh, it was a terrific school. But they both said that over the years, their their attendance fluctuated according to the level of tension in, in that area. And it was, it was tension between loyalist paramilitaries. It wasn't, it wasn't across the divide. Mm-hmm. Dreadful, you know, sometimes... They would find all the all the children allegedly with UDA parents didn't turn up and so on that sort of thing. Okay. The work you're doing, I'm sure, would, would be trying to alleviate some of that nonsense. Look, I, I don't really, as far as multi-year funding is concerned, you, you'll get no argument from this committee. That, that would be ideal for all the community and voluntary sector uh, bodies. And, um, at the moment, it doesn't seem possible, but... Maybe better days are coming. Certainly, you, sh- you should be high up the list if, if we do achieve that. So I just wish you well and pass on to the next, uh, next question. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Okay. All right, Trevor, thank you very much for that. We're going to ask then Pat Sheehan to come up next for some questions. Pat, we can pass to yourself. Thank you, and, and thanks, uh, Emily and Lisa. Uh, I think you've covered most of the bases. Um, so I have just one short question, really. And I suppose within your, your practices, has there been any consideration given to informing uh, the various communities and 
I suppose, parents and children about the discrimination and racism that's suffered by, I suppose, whether you want to call them immigrants, newcomer, refugee uh, families. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's a spot on question as well. Uh, Emily, do you want to pick up on that way one, just in terms of programme? Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I would say is that I think um, increasingly many our, many of our schools, in particular in certain geographies, are, are quite um, multicultural and much more so than they would have been maybe years ago. And we work directly with those schools and, and the kinds of work that we do with Buddy Up in terms of building friendships, um, promoting empathy, uh, embracing multicultural uh, diversity of identity, sharing traditions, all of those main messages that we're, that we're promoting with Body Up are directly applicable. And we would, you know, openly be, be bringing that into the classroom when we're, when we're physically there in the classroom and talking to, talking to the kids and running our programs. Um, so, so absolutely, I think it's, it's relevant um, increasingly so and many of the schools, you know, are our schools where, um, you know, that diversity is, is absolutely just the norm. Um, so we've had really good relationships. And I think, you know, particularly um, so I'm thinking of um, areas where um, Fane Street, St. Paul's, for example, they're a great shared education partnership that that has been um, part of our Urban Villages program. And they share, you know, maybe an increasingly diverse international um, constituency of <clears throat> community representatives and children and families. And so, you know, in some respects, that's really a lovely partnership. Um, but it's it's very it's very much kind of on the forefront of, of the way we work in terms of building the friendships across um, across all communities and embracing that inclusive identity. And I mean, if I could just pitch in as well, the, the school's a sanctuary, um, Pat, so that's the, one of the other education cross-cutting projects. So uh, school's a sanctuary is about creating, you know, schools where safety and inclusion and welcome are at the forefront. And our project layers really lovely on top of that to, for the schools to work in partnership and to bring in the parental aspect. And I think just really important in normalizing that all sorts of people and backgrounds and you know lives live and and deserve to live and have the right to live in our communities and i think schools and, and that status of a school of sanctuary really is an important um communicator into the local community and so that can only be strengthened on built and built on with with more work yeah no, that, that, that's excellent and i mean what we would expect i suppose um, the one issue um, that, I mean, it's, it's great that kids can mix and integrate with other kids, whether from different races, different religions, or, or, or whatever. I suppose the problem is once the kids go outside the school, and I'm just wondering how you can influence parents. For example, if parents are, are racist uh, or sectarian or whatever, I mean, how do we how do we break that down, as as opposed and they're just getting the kids to mix together? I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Of course, it's good. I'm just wondering how we take that next step. I think that's absolutely critical to our program response, Pat. So, one of and as Colin mentioned that at the start after the presentation, like how we work maybe isn't um, seen as 
normal when you think of working in schools, you think of the children, but a lot of our focus is on the adult community. So directly engaging parents, not just inviting them out to lovely events where they see their children, you know, working and playing and, and having the crack together. But we have dialogue events with parents. We ask them about, well, well what are your hopes for your, your children and your family right now and into the future? What are the barriers to those hopes been realized and how can we get up, up beyond those? We, we have all sorts of um, dialogues around, like for example, the history of migration in and out of the island of Ireland over hundreds of years. So the people can have a longer, you know, cast back to where do we, you know, where did our identities come from? We're a real hybrid of all sorts of eras of our history. So helping, um, I suppose, with the adult education piece is really, really important, has improved to be really important in breaking down some of those barriers and mindsets and even myths that parents naturally, you know, that I would have held about other communities until I had the opportunity to, for example, land in the Shankill Road at the start of my career request, request and realise that, you know, I was welcome being someone from you know, South Armagh. You know, I, I was nervous about that in the early days and have to say uh, it's never been an issue. So I think there's a lot of myths out there. And once you have an opportunity to bring adults into facilitated dialogue with each other, those barriers just just, I mean, go right down. We will forward out to you. I think I mentioned it in the initial letter, an impact case study. We've done our first edition. It's called Ripples of Peace, and it features um, Donegal Road and St Malachy's brand new school partnership where one of those parent dialogues was had. And you'll see some of the feedback from it that speaks to exactly the sort of impact that you'd be hoping to have. That's critical to have, you know, the safety net that allows the children to come through. And if I could just add one last thing, I mean, it is a generational approach. We need to see it in the long-term basis. This is long-term change we're trying to, to, trying to encourage. Um, and again, if we can leave you with one message that that, that multi-year funding allows the longer-term commitment. Um, and it, it means that we can really make those changes and invest in those communities and invest in those families over the long-term. Okay, not very much. Thank you, Chair. Okay, Pat, thanks very much for that. Could I maybe just ask for George to be brought up just to double check? Because I know, George, sometimes the raised hand function doesn't work there. So, George, is there anything that you'd like to ask? <clears throat> Excuse me, Chair. Yes, um, and very, very welcome to Lisa and Emily, and um, they've given us an excellent pre presentation. Um, I'm just a couple of wee points here. Um, I represent the Slundarium, live in Limavarium. Uh, we are presently building a new shared education campus between uh, Limavari High School and St Mary's School. And uh, it's going to be fairly exciting. The, the only thing is that the headmasters, they're tearing the hair out of their heads. They're trying to get, get a sports hall uh, included in, in the project. But unfortunately, the education authority seems to be dragging their feet on it, and if there's any way or any input you could have uh, to, to help that, because it's a it's a, an excellent project between between the two schools, and they're they're to be commended for the, the absolute uh, necessary work that they're doing for for young people in this area. And again, thank you very very much. And anything from a committee point of view that we can do to help you, we we certainly will. 
I met the Lima Valley principal just last week at the Innovation Lab around shared education. So we haven't really worked on helping schools get a shared sports hall, but you know we're not we're not adverse to trying new things. So anything we could do to help um, and reach out with those schools, we'd be glad to. Yes, yeah, be great. Be brilliant. If if you have any input whatsoever, be very very much very much appreciated. Particularly from Darren, Darren Morning, the the, he the headmaster of the high school. We, we have had, had quite, a, quite a lot of meetings with over the past while back. But, uh, thank, you. thank you again. Okay, thank that's great. Thank you very much for that. And I, don't, I don't see uh, Trevor or Christopher indicating there for uh, any questions, so I'm going to maybe just go on and assume um, that they're okay. Maybe Christopher sometimes has difficulty with the, the hand up, Christopher. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine, thank you. Okay, dead on, dead on. Okay, listen, um, Lisa and Emily, thank you very much for your presentation today. Um, you know, I think you're doing the sort of work that we want to see more of. You're doing the sort of work that we know is important and critical to helping form healthy attitudes amongst our young people. Um, it's about you know promoting uh, amongst our young people the sort of society that we want to move forward and see in the future. Um, as I say, coming from that background of doing community relations work in schools, as I have done in the past, I can appreciate and understand the importance of it. And still, even to this day, bump in uh, the street and in the community to many people that would have participated uh, in programmes in the past. And whilst occasionally it might be over a pint in the local bar where people are telling me, I did that program, but I learned this and I learned that and I learned the other. Whenever that's 20 years later, you know that you were having an impact. Line. And I think that the assurance that you would get from having a sustained uh, funding package in place to allow you to plan is something that would be very, very critical. And I'm sure that we'll take a few moments afterwards as a committee to discuss maybe if there's ways that we could advocate for that. But to both of you, thank you very much for your attendance here today. We'll let you go. And as I say, uh, good luck with your work going forward. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you again in the future. Okay. Incredible. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Bye. Bye. And maybe if we do, just pop the committee up into the um, up into the spotlight because I think it uh, it might be worthwhile to maybe write uh, to the department just to to advocate on the back of what we have heard today uh, and maybe ask about some just to advocate for the the process of a multi year. Uh, funding stream for groups and the work that they do. Uh, would members be happy if we did something like that? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So look, we'll get uh, we'll make get some correspondence together uh, from the committee and uh, maybe discuss the importance of of multi year funding for groups such as as the uh, the community relations in school. Okay, members, that's brought us to exactly three o'clock, which is exactly the time for. Our next presentation, uh, it is item six on the agenda, which is the Urban Villages and Communities in Transition. It's an oral evidence session from departmental officials. Uh, members on pages 31 to 33 are the relevant papers. And if I could ask that we could bring up into the spotlight uh, Lindsay Farrell, who is the Director of Urban Villages and Communities in Transition at the Executive Office, to Grania McConnell who is the Urban Villages Programme Delivery Manager at the Executive Office, and to Colin Moffat, who is the Community and Transition Project Delivery 
uh, manager uh, at the executive office. So um, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you for coming along here today uh, for this uh, presentation. And I think maybe are we handing over to yourself, Lindsay, maybe to kick off, and then afterwards we can ask members uh, for some questioning after that. So over to yourself, Lindsay. Thank you very much, Chair, um, and thank you to the committee for the opportunity to be here this afternoon. It's all of our first outing on Starleaf, uh, so bear with us and let's hope the technology holds up. Um, but we really do appreciate the opportunity to be here with you this afternoon to give you an update on both the Urban Villages Initiative and the Communities in Transition Project. So if the committee are content, um, I will start with Urban Villages, then move on to Communities in Transition, and then we can allow for questions at the end, if that sounds okay. So since 2016, uh, the Urban Villages Initiative has been supporting a range of community-led cross-cutting and capital projects to improve good relations and help develop thriving places in areas where there's been a history of deprivation and issues around community tension and the legacy of the conflict. You'll be aware that there are five urban village areas, four in Belfast and one in Derry, London, Derry. So the Derry, London, Derry urban village takes in the Bogside, Fountain and Bishop Street areas, while South Belfast covers Sandy Road, Donegal Pass and the Markets. Our North Belfast urban village covers the areas of Ardoyne and Greater Ballysillan, with East Belfast taking in the Newtonards Road, the area from Grampian Avenue to Bridge End. The Collin area makes up our West Belfast urban village area. So the initiative shapes and delivers programs and projects in partnership with local people across all five areas. It's an area-based and community-informed approach that promotes good relations through a dual approach of building community infrastructure and social capital, while also building cross-community networks and projects. As a result, the program's having a real impact on people's lives and the places where they live in terms of both community cohesion impacts and outcomes and improving the physical environment through our capital project delivery element. So working with community and statutory partners, the initiative has successfully delivered 198 programmes involving over 60,000 participants and more than 790,000 attendees at events across the five urban village areas across Belfast and Derry, Londonderry. There are currently more than 41 community-led projects spanning the five areas and these are projects that enable local groups and residents to tackle a wide range of social issues that are very much led and informed by the priorities within the local area. This includes innovative approaches to issues such as health and well-being, making places feel safer and more vibrant, and supporting learning, employment, volunteering opportunities for young people and others within the community. Cross-cutting initiatives are another important element of our programme, which represents strategic approaches to priorities shared across the urban village areas. They involve working in partnership across central and local government and with other key stakeholders, such as Buddy Up and Chris, that you've just had a briefing from. The initiatives include support in 46 schools across the urban village area, employability initiatives, tourism and heritage, capacity building, and the £6 million Peace for funding programme, which is focused in urban village areas to su support uh, positive mental health and emotional resilience. These projects have seen 349 groups working together collaboratively and over 1,200 training courses delivered overall, whilst building stronger connectivity both across and within the urban villages themselves. In 2015, at the outset of the programme, ministers announced a then planned £45 million capital investment in support of a whole range of capital projects in the five areas. 
These range from parks, community hubs and transformation of vacant and derelict sites. £2.2 million had already been invested at that point, giving a total capital budget indicatively at that point of £47.2 million. The Urban Villages Initiative in its current form is currently set to continue until March of 2023, with a further 12 months to allow for existing capital projects to be completed. 44 capital projects are now completed, with over 300,000 users, over 700 activities delivered, and over 500 construction and administrative jobs created as a result. The remainder are working their way through the development, planning, and business case stages. Given the passage of time, and now we have a much firmer assessment in terms of the project viability and costs, and particular taking accounts of global impacts on the construction industry as a result of the pandemic and other issues, a review of the capital plans currently underway, and it's under consideration within the department. I think we're very clear in terms of measuring impact across the programme, uh, and obviously the committee have heard today about the value of measuring the difference that we're making through our programmes. From the surveys that we have completed across urban villages, 90% of participants have met someone from a different background where they didn't previously have the opportunity to do that. 84% have experienced the culture and traditions of different backgrounds, with 80% feeling more favourable towards people from a different background. We've also seen 91% of participants reporting improved mental health and well-being, with 94% having an increased knowledge and skills. At March of this year, the Urban Villages Initiative will have invested £32 million across the five areas. That's a collective of £8.6 million revenue and £23.4 million capital, including £5 million of partnership funding that has been leveraged in through our partnerships with other departments and agencies. So the area-based approach we feel has proven to be extremely effective. We feel there's really valuable learning here that we're capturing and we want to explore how we can expand and extend and apply that to other areas. And we feel there's important learning in terms of our theory of change and how we go about our business in terms of allowing that community-informed approach to really work through from the community up and to allow us to identify and really embed that good practice that we know is happening across those five areas. So in moving on to the Communities in Transition project, um, you'll be aware that the Communities in Transition project is one of 38 actions contained within the Executive's Action Plan on tackling paramilitary activity, criminality and organised crime. In the programme, you will be aware it's known as Action B4, um, which committed the Executive to supporting ambitious initiatives aimed at building capacity in communities in transition, including through developing those all-important partnerships that we know really work across civil society and across community divisions. The project is designed to support and empower communities that have been most impacted by the issues around paramilitarism, other forms of criminality and the ongoing coercive control that comes along with that. You'll be aware that again it is an area-based approach and the eight areas of focus that were identified at the outset of the project take in Carrick-Ferguson-Larn, Amptyville and Coldwater in Larn together with Northland and Castle Mara in Carrick-Fergus, Brandywell and Craigan in the Derry-Londonderry area, Kilcooley and Rathgill in North Down, North Lurgan taking in the area of Kilwilkie and then Drumgask and Craigavon. West Belfast, which pretty much covers the entirety of West Belfast from Lower Falls 
to Ballymurphy, new, new Lodge in Greater Ardoin in North Belfast and Upper and Lower Shankill, including the Woodvale area. And last but by no means least, the Mountain Ballymacarrot in East Belfast. These areas were identified through a piece of research which was commissioned by the programme board. Um, the intention of this was to ensure that a targeted approach was taken to the areas that are most impacted by that continued paramilitary presence and that resources weren't being diluted too thinly across the whole of our society. We do recognise, however, that these are not the only areas impacted by these issues and expansion of the approach is something that's under active consideration within the department, obviously within the context of the, the budget constraints that we're working within currently. The project worked with an academic consortium early on, and the purpose of that was really to engage extensively within communities, to really get under the skin of what was happening in these areas, to understand the underlying issues and dynamics at play, and in particular, those vulnerabilities at a community level that can often be exploited by paramilitaries and organised criminals. As a result of that piece of work, seven core themes for intervention were identified. These cover issues such as community development, community safety and policing, health and well-being, culture and identity, addressing the needs of young people, specific support for ex-prisoners. And when we talk about ex-prisoners, it's people with conflict-related convictions that, pre that relate to activities that predate 1998 and restorative practice. To date, under these themes, CIT has commissioned 34 individual projects across the eight areas of focus. There are 272 individual organisations involved in some aspect of the project, whether that's as lead delivery organisations, tender partners, or indeed beneficiaries, and approximately 1,300 individuals are participating. Delivery up until the end of March of this year was supported by a budget of £8.5 million. Back in July of 2020, the executive had considered a proposed approach to extending the Tackling Paramilitarism, Criminality and Organised Crime programme for a further three years, up to the end of March 2024. This approach included the continuation of the Communities and Transition project, and approval was given in principle subject to the confirmation of the match funding from Treasury. We received the confirmation of our budget settlement at the end of February of this year, when the Secretary of State wrote to the Justice Minister to confirm the level of UK government funding for the continuation of the programme. In that settlement, it was confirmed that communities in transition would benefit from a £10 million allocation to support the continued delivery of CIT over a three-year period. It's true that this sum of £10 million does fall short of the initial £12 million bid that we had initially put into the programme, but I think we very much welcome the three-year certainty that does come with that budget settlement. I think it's something that recognises, as the committee itself recognised before our briefing, that this is longer-term, difficult, complex work, and it requires that longer-term, more strategic approach in terms of our planning and to see these impacts really invest at a local level. It also allows us to be strategic on that three-year basis in terms of the design, delivery and implementation of projects across the eight areas. So since uh, last year, we have been undertaking a lot of engagement across the eight areas that we work in to really refine proposals for the next phase of the project. This has included engagement with current delivery partners, statutory agencies, political representatives, 
and other stakeholders and we do really appreciate all of the input there has been from political reps who have taken part in those sessions and our political briefings. Public pre-market engagement sessions took place online between the 4th and 12th of May, and these were really an opportunity for us to restate the purpose of the Communities and Transition Project and to share indicative outline plans at that point for Phase 2 projects, which we hope to deliver in Phase 2 across the eight areas of focus. The procurement phase for the next phase of the project commenced on the 21st of May, and we would intend to have awarded the phase two projects in early July, which will hopefully minimise any gap between the phase one projects ending at the end of June and the phase two activities kicking in in July. So that has been, I know that's been a lot of information to cover across both projects. We're very happy to follow up um, with, with written briefing papers, if that would be helpful to the committee, that will include a lot of this detail, but very happy to take any questions or comments now on both urban villages and communities in transition. Thank you. All right, Lindsay, thanks very much for that. Um, I'm going to jump straight over to Pat Sheehan because I know he needs to go at um, 3.30. So, Pat, we can let you kick off with the questioning there. Uh, thanks very much, Colin. Uh, and, and thanks, Lindsay, for that presentation. Uh, it's very comprehensive. And, I mean, I know um, both of these projects, the uh, Communities in Transition and the Urban Villages, have made a big difference. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically about West Belfast because that's where I have knowledge of both of them. And I know uh, Jennifer McCann was like a dog with a bone and Arlea Flynn has sort of taken over where she left off and, and, and done a lot of work there. And I've, you know, I've spoken to other community activists, people like uh, um, Jerry McConville, Peter Lynch, Jim Gervin, people like that. And I've spoken to them about the communities in transition uh, in particular, and they believe, and, and these are people who have years of experience in, in the community sector, who believe that it is really making a difference. You know, it is impacting on levels of criminality. Uh, there are fewer these so-called punishment, beatings and shootings, and, you know, all, all the type of things that we're trying to eradicate from society, and, and it's having an impact. I am uh, slightly concerned that, you know, there was a bid made for 12 million uh, and you only got 10. Do you think, is there any chance that that extra couple of million could be made up in the, in the future? Thank you, Pat, and thanks for the, the comments on, on both programmes. Um, I think uh, we're very much viewing and our ministers are very much viewing that 10 million pounds as a contribution um, to the delivery of phase two of communities and transition. Um, it's a very helpful basis for us to, to move ahead in terms of the phase two tendering and to plan on that basis. But we are actively considering in the department at this point options for how we might enhance that budget. And I would be very confident that we will be able to do that to some extent, um, but that's still under active consideration because I, I know there are concerns. I was out in the culinary this morning, for example, and concerns were voiced with me, you know, around the reduction in phase two budgets from phase mm -hmm. one. 
I think groups understand that we have had to do a lot of work in terms of maximising that 10 million across all eight areas. Um, and certainly we want to keep the momentum going in terms of the projects, as, which is why we have moved ahead. But certainly if uh, additional resource were to become available, we would be keen to augment phase two budgets for contracts where we can do that and also leave the scope to try and test some new ideas because we're very conscious that in these communities things don't stand still and issues will change and the context will change and we want to be agile and to be able to be respond responsive to that so we would like to build in some scope for that sorts of activity as well pat so that is something we're actively looking at um, and discussing with ministers around how that budget might be enhanced for phase two Okay, thanks for that, uh, Lindsay. And um, there was an argument, I think, at one stage for a youth stream to be included in the uh, communities in transition. Where does that stand at the minute? Yeah, so youth was, was one of those themes that emerged across all eight of the areas, Pat, in terms of being a really important area of focus. Youth were identified as being a particularly vulnerable group, vulnerable uh, to, I suppose, the influences of these organisations, vulnerable to being drawn into that type of activity and vulnerable to recruitment. Um, so it has always been an ongoing area of focus for us. I think at a programme level, um, there's a really um, deliberate approach in terms of, of the, the approach to young people. So there's a lot of activity that our colleagues in the Education Authority are taking forward at that local level. So I think for us, the challenge has been to find where CIT can add value to that path. Um, we absolutely don't want to be duplicating what the Education Authority are providing. But there are some areas where particular issues are coming up in terms of perhaps joining up what's there in terms of the youth provision. I know that's something that came out in North Belfast, for example, and in Shankill. So we're having conversations with our colleagues in the Education Authority around how we can best complement what they're doing and add value without actually um, duplicating anything that they're doing. Colin, I'm not sure, is there anything else more detailed around youth in the areas that you'd like to add to that? No, I think that's a, a fairly comprehensive summary. Like Lindsay has said, youth is a theme that's been really key and critical across all areas. And it is one, you know, to be to be frank with the committee, that Communities in Transition has had to do extra work to find our place in, and to de-conflict with what's being provided across the board, because there's a number of players in this area. And really, our focus has to be on ensuring that anything we do do isn't duplicating or setting up essentially parallel services, but really complements and works with those other strands. Um, that has been difficult. There's no no doubt about it. That has been difficult. Um, but I, I would think that we're we're honing in on what those projects might look like um, over the next couple of weeks. What I would also say, Pat, just in addition, um, we've had a number of really helpful meetings with the Department of Education, and we think there's a, a really good opportunity now as we face into phase two, as we have this three-year certainty, to really um, join up and collaborative uh, in a more collaborative way with them in terms of the rollout of our projects. Um, obviously, yesterday we saw the, the publication 
of the Fair Start report. Um, there's certainly really important learning um, for the communities that we are working in, in terms of educational aspirations, underachievement, lack of achievement. So I think there's real opportunities for synergies there that we've already started to explore with the department and we'll continue to work with them and explore where we can have better partnerships with them to, to try and meet, I think, the outcomes that we all want to see in these communities. Um, we're already focusing in a number of areas around smaller scale projects about raising the aspirations of young people, um, working with the schools and, and trying to instill that, that aspiration for something better and for better alternatives from the age of three or four. And we feel that's really where it's at in terms of that early intervention. And I think, again, that's something we'd be keen to develop as we go into phase two. Okay, that's great, Lindsay. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Okay, Pat, thank you. Okay, um, I need to be careful here, Lindsay, whenever you ask Colin to come in and contribute at the end of it, I panic that you're asking me to add on to the end Sorry. of it. I, I recognize that you've you've somebody with you called Colin. Too many um, Collins. Give me a number instead. <laughs> I'll try and chip in as I can. Look, maybe the next question, and, and, and I, I don't mean this to appear rude, but there is a perception in places that the Communities and Transition Fund is a slush fund for groups that may not have moved themselves towards um, exclusively peaceful and democratic uh, approaches, um, and that there is some uh, hesitancy within people to, to see this money being invested in groups. What assurances could you give me today, I suppose, that that perception is wrong or that you can do to challenge that perception? Yeah, no, thank you for, for that question and, and for your calendar. I think it's really important we, we discuss these things. What I would say is that some of the commentary that there has been in media over recent weeks has been entirely unhelpful and wholly inaccurate. And I think our ministers have taken every opportunity to make that point, both in the chamber and through other forms of statements. Um, right from the outset, I suppose we have always been up against it uh, in terms of a perception around communities in transition. And that was something we were very alive to. I think we're all realistic enough to know that we're all working in a very difficult space when it comes to these types of issues. And there are sensitivities, and these, these issues are complex. They have developed over generations, and it will take a longer-term approach. So I think we recognise that from the outset. And I think from that point of view, we had taken a lot of time at the outset and often attracted criticism for it, um, for going out, explaining the concept of CIT. And indeed, many walked away from the process because they, they didn't feel it was what it should have been. There was a lobby that felt it should have been about transitioning paramilitary organisations to something else. We have always been very clear that communities and transition is not about that. It is about focusing on the communities. It's about building the capacity to support the transition of those communities. And that includes increasing their capacity, building the skills. It's also about improving collaboration both within and across those communities. And it's also about increasing participation. And all of that is laid out in a very clear theory of change that we have for our project. That's about those three elements. It's also about addressing the factors that allow paramilitary organizations to recruit. 
It's about addressing the factors that allow them to exert coercive control over a community. Um, it's about allowing them to be legitimate at a community level and addressing the factors that allow them to do that. So the whole premises of CIT, and I must say it's only one project out of 38, we can do what we can through our projects to build that capacity, to improve that community resilience, but it does require all elements of the programme to wrap around and play their part also at a community level. CIT is not about providing a policing response. CIT is about building a strong, confident, resilient community. And I think we've taken a lot of time to communicate that theory of change, which is why it is incredibly disappointing then when we are faced with the type of inaccurate media reporting that we've seen. We've taken the opportunity through the recent pre-market engagement to reaffirm that and to talk about our theory of change again. We've also taken a lot of time right at the outset of the project to deliver a behaviours framework because we were often met with the challenge, well, how do you ensure that the funding from this project doesn't fall into nefarious hands or, or dubious people? And we developed a behaviours framework that was based on the revised ministerial code of conduct. It required anyone delivering a project on our behalf to sign up to this behaviours framework, to the rule of law, to non-violence, to support for the police. And that was included as a condition of contract in all of our phase one contracts. We have reaffirmed that again as we go into phase two, and that will again be built in as a condition of contract for phase two contracts. And that's something that is made very clear, that if you want to deliver a project on behalf of communities in transition, you must sign up to that behaviours framework. So I think, um, we can totally stand over our theory of change, what it is that we're trying to do. But I do really feel we, we do need that collective conversation and the media has a role to play in this in terms of responsible reporting around the project, what it is and more importantly, what it's not. Uh, and I think we have made that very, very clear and our ministers continue to do that at every opportunity. Okay, I probably wouldn't just share as much the element that the ministers have been uh, entirely explicit about it. I think they've said that the reports that were there were wrong, but I don't think they've really done an awful lot to detail just, just how that was wrong. And perception is everything. The perception, I think one of the best ways to challenge perception is to provide lots of information, and then people can make that informed decision themselves. And I suppose... As you mentioned there about that ministerial, almost adapted from a ministerial code perspective of, of, of guidelines for people, has that ever had to be invoked? Have you ever had to, to challenge that? Because certainly there would be, again, you know, knowledge maybe on the ground that there, there are people that would have been involved in certain groups or people that are involved in certain political parties that are then involved in some of the activities. Um, so have you found at all that you've had to invoke that that code with any organisation or any individual within a group at any point over the, the last period? I think there's been a couple of occasions, Colin, where the behaviours framework has actually been invoked by the delivery partner organisation themselves, where they have potentially had concerns, and you'll understand you'll, that I can't go into the actual details just to, to protect the organisations involved, um, but there has been times where they have invoked uh, the conditions of that behaviours framework within their organisation as a way of maintaining the integrity of their project and their reputation in terms of the delivery of that. Okay. And is that is there a record kept of that? Well, like, if, would you be able to follow up with us and maybe let us know how many times that's happened? Or is that something that, that's not kept as a strict record? 
we would be, certainly be able to follow up with you in terms of how many times that has been invoked and to, to clarify that with you, certainly. Could we get the code? Would you forward us that code as well, just so that we can see Absolutely. what as as an, an, okay, that would be good. Um, and then maybe just sort of what time scale do you see going going forward with this? Because um, you know, again, we're twenty three years down the line from from the Good Friday Agreement. You know, we talk about communities in transition. You know, hopefully tra a transition would have an end point that we can see ourselves moving towards. Um, and I suppose the danger, again, like, for example, there are eight areas there that, that are targeted, you know, so there are dozens, over 100 areas in Northern Ireland that aren't targeted. And sometimes we can get into that sort of financial support jealousy where certain areas don't see money coming in. They don't see any benefit of government investment, but yet they look and see other areas getting investment. But then they also switch their TV on on a weekend evening and see petrol bombs being thrown and tensions in the community and rightly take the step back and say, what's the point of all that money going in there? Or maybe we have to say, thankfully, the money is going in there because what would it have been like if it wasn't there? But still, there is that, that sense that people see tens of millions of pounds every year being pumped into communities. But what's the outcome at the other end to improve those communities? Yeah, Colin, and I, I agree with you. Where you have an area-based programme, I think there is always an element of other areas looking on and saying, well, why there and not here? And why that community and not ours? And I, I think we have to be open and say we've had that, that same issue in terms of both urban villages and communities in transition. But I think what we can say in terms of both programmes is, as we've rolled out with the initiatives, we're very reassured that we're working in the right areas in terms of the types of issues that are presenting themselves. And, and as we look at the impact of our projects, I think the recent unrest that you mentioned over recent weeks, I think you've just hit the nail in the head. It, it can be often very difficult to build a narrative around the impact of all of this, because on one hand, you, you could argue, well, what difference is that money making? But on the other hand, you can say, well, does this not show where working in the right areas and we need more of it over a longer time and I think the committee has already heard today around some of the frustrations there are across the sector in terms of you know shorter term annual funding rounds and that's certainly something we heard when we went out to engage across the areas that this really does require that more sustained longer term approach and that type of very focused intensive look at the issues and a layering of interventions which I think is brought by an area-based approach you know it allows you to go into an area look at the whole swathe of issues and then come up with a coordinated plan as it were and if CIT or urban villages can't address each of those issues, we certainly will try and connect and reach out to others who can come in and wrap around those communities. So I think um, CIT certainly has that real opportunity now that we have that three-year um, approach and that three-year certainty. But I think the challenge for us at this stage is to get our measures right, you know, in terms of the impact that we're having. Um, at a programme level, they're moving to a benefits management approach and the benefit that communities in transition will be asked to link into is an improvement in community resilience. So we're taking a lot of time at this point before the phase two tenders 
are developed or are awarded that we actually develop those measures around that improved collaboration that I talked about, that increased participation at a community level and those developed skills and capacity. And it'll be against those that our measures will then be be looked at and how projects will be measured in terms of their impact. And I think um, if we really hold fast to our theory of change and measure the impact that we're having against those three indicators, um, I'm very confident that these projects overlaid with each other and developed in that really integrated way can really narrow the ground at a community level for those influences we know that can try to exploit any space that they're given. Okay, Lindsay, thank, thank you for that. I'm going to pass over uh, to John Stewart, the Deputy Chair, um, for some questions. So if we could bring John up into the spotlight, please. John, over to yourself. Thanks, Chair. Um, thank you, Lindsay and Colin Gonier for that. Um, Lindsay, you're clearly very passionate about that. You can just tell, you know, by the way you're coming across. And this is something that you have, you have a clear interest in. And I take my hat off to you for the, the work you've done to get us here. Um, as the chair sort of alluded to, there have been various guises of schemes like this since since 1998. And I think some of the scepticism comes from the fact that they just see it as another, more of the same, more of the carrot um, and less of a stick. And while I don't believe that to be the case, there is that belief out there. Do you believe the key to maybe this one is the amount of research that went into identifying those areas, first of all? And um, how, do you, how important do you think then going forward um, I know we've got three years for this, but to try and embed it and keep it there and not have to keep going back and revisiting these areas, how key do you think it is to embed that into local community groups, into the councils, having that as part of their good relations strategy, um, working with the PSNI, all those statutory agencies, how important is that for long-term success? No, thank you, John. Um, uh, uh, and you're right, there, there is a level of scepticism, you know, around these programmes. Um, and I know there is a narrative that this is more of the same. I think the point you made about the time taken around the research is a really important one. And that's what I would argue is the difference in terms of this approach. So yes, there was, there was the research done to identify the areas, but I think the key point uh, point around communities and transition that differentiates us from other programs was the time taken to actually go out into the areas, talk to communities in their widest sense, um, not just the gatekeepers, talk to communities and actually listen to what they were saying. And not just to listen, but to truly try to understand the nature of the issues. Because I think what that did was it allowed us to understand that on the face of it, a lot of the issues seem the same, you know, so young people, um, community safety, um, confidence in policing, health and well-being, a lot of the issues were very similar. But when you actually took the time to engage with communities, often they manifested themselves in different ways or there were different vulnerabilities at a community level that needed a very distinct tailored response and I think that is what is different about CIT. It's not a, a program that has been designed within the executive office and then rolled out in eight areas uh, equally and very generally. It has been a program, yes the approach was designed but really it came and was informed by the communities themselves both in terms of the issues and the, the areas that were identified but also in terms of the types of projects that would work and what implementation might work in Carrick and Lorne 
may not work in Drumgask and Kowalki. And that is something that we've seen played out in terms of the, the project. So I think this is what makes this different. And it has been taking that time at the front end to understand. We all, we did get a lot of criticism for that, John, um, from the communities. They just wanted us to get on with it. They just wanted us to get the funding out the door and the projects to happen. But I think everyone is now seeing the benefits of having taken that time uh, up front. Your point around you know, three years and embedding the good practice as we go is also a really important one. Uh, we see three stages to everything that we do in communities and transition. We think there's a lot of enabling activity. We also think there's a lot of empowerment required within these areas, but a really important piece around embedding the learning and the good practice. When we went out to the eight areas that we work in, there was a huge frustration amongst communities that they felt often good practice was lost between short-term funding schemes. So when one came to an end, that knowledge and experience dropped off and it wasn't necessarily picked up again in every case by the next funding programme. So that's something we're very keen to do as we go to embed that good practice to make sure that the capacity is built within the communities and resides within the communities, and then that we are linking it in to those local structures, as you mentioned, councils, the local neighbourhood policing teams, that, that there's a sense of ownership at its widest sense around this work, because that is what's going to make it sustainable and embedded in the longer term. So that's very much going to be a focus of ours as we go into phase two and, and making those connections right from early on of our phase two projects. Okay, um, just one more point in terms of the, the measurements. Um, is, there, is that something you'll want to assess and monitor as things go along or is this something you'll look after three years and, and trying to figure out how success has gone obviously those who are put, rolling out the, the schemes will see individual examples of positive outcomes but in terms of from an overall point of view it, is that something that really needs to be looked at at the end of the scheme yeah so john i'll bring colin then around the the detail of this as well he's been doing a lot of work around this i think it will be a, a hybrid approach of rolling evaluation as we go and then something at the end as well but again colin will be a lot closer to the detail around where we've got to around all of that yeah i think that's that's a spot on description and to send that it's that that kind of rolling assessment mixed in with something more full and wholesome then towards the, the end of the project. Because what we would like to be able to do is as we're going, if we spot you know, cases of best practice or things that work uh, or things that could be mainstreamed somewhere else, we'd like to be able to promote that and bring that to the door of you know the best place department or body to actually do those things. So yeah, we will be measuring on an ongoing basis. We'll be doing that at, at both an individual project and thematic level. So. Um, say where we've got a community safety project, there'll be individual metrics and measures that we're looking for movement on there. There'll also be things we're looking at in terms of the overall CIT approach. Um, so to circle background, we will be looking at that on an ongoing basis and then being uh, in a position then towards the end to provide a, a more fulsome update on, on the entire approach. Okay, no worries. Thanks for that. Thanks, Lindsay. Colin, go on you. Cheers, Chair. Thanks for your time today. Okay, um, nobody else is indicating to ask questions at this stage, but I will just do a double check with uh, George, if he's there. Just George, have you anything you want to check out? Okay, I'm doing my lip reading and think I got no, I'm fine there. So I'm going to run with that. I think you're okay with that, George. Right? Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm fine. Sure, thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, Lindsay, Grania, Colin, thank you very much indeed for, for coming along and giving us that update today. It's been very informative. Um, maybe just if, uh, Lindsay, even if you want just to send us through your notes there from, from what you gave, it'd be good just to have something to be able to read to, to get an update on that, on, on some of the work that would be, be very helpful. But thank you very much to the three of you for coming along today. No, and thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, members, we'll juggle around and bring yourselves back up into the audit or into the spotlight so that we can run through the last few items on the agenda. Um, is there anything that anybody wants to ask or check as an update to that last presentation? Okay, that one seems to be all right then. Okay, then we'll move to item seven, which is the uh, Historical Institutional Abuse the Community Mo Commu Committee motion and our consideration of the wording. Uh, on page 35 to 41 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers. Uh, just to remind members that it was agreed at last week's meeting that the committee would delay agreeing the motion calling for a review of the HIA redress board until it has been established. Such a review would not have an adverse effect on the current process. Um, a formal response has not been received from the department, but we are confident to say that it would be unusual for any such review to inhibit the current practice. Um, so we could proceed with the stipulation that a review should not interrupt the process whilst it is being carried out. So the proposed wording is there. Um, are members happy to proceed with that or are there any views on that we'd like to take? Chair. Okay. Emma, yeah, go on ahead. Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Chair. No, it was just... Um... I know we had obviously asked about sort of getting more information on what a review would constitute or a sort of a, a cast iron guarantee that it wouldn't lead to any delays um, for victims and survivors. I know that there has been correspondence there in the table papers from for an offer to meet with yourself and and John now and well, welcome John as the, as the vice chair of the committee um, with the president. I wonder, can that be, I'm just, we've obviously had a lot of presentations and have have had loads of correspondence and are aware of these issues. And I, I, I have, would have a real apprehension about us doing anything that then means that someone who is on that waiting list at the minute Absolutely. might, you know, find further delay. And if there was an opportunity for us to streamline that, to, you know, to get an opportunity to speak to the president and put all this to it and get get a tangible response as to how they're dealing with the issues and the delays that have come up with the redress board rather than the process of, to me it just review just just shouts halt look at how things are doing and when, when you start to look at how things are being done midway through sometimes you can put a, a stop on the whole process so it was just it was just to, to reiterate that and to see if, if there was a quicker way to do that okay um right look Maybe let's let's look at maybe a solution if this would work. The proposed wording that is there, could we add at the very end of it, you know, and cause the first deputy first minister to carry out a review of the redress board, which must not inhibit the current, you know, the current application. You know, must not. I, I mean, I'm, I'm could think of a way of words, but something that basically says that will not prevent anybody that's in the current system or there, and also. It's likely to be the very last sitting of the towards the last sitting of the assembly before any committee motion would be tabled. 
and we do have the groups coming to visit us on the 23rd of June. What we could do as well is we could schedule the uh, president of the board to come that day as well and do a presentation to us. And then if we felt at the end of that meeting with both the groups and the president that there was no need for that committee uh, motion, which would be two weeks later, we could withdraw it. But if we could include in the wording of the motion that it must not inhibit the current process that anybody is going through, would something like that capture everybody's views on that? Jerry, yeah, I would fully agree with what you said. Yeah, thanks, George. And Trevor, you, you're looking in there? Yeah, I'm kind of with Emma here. The, the, the notion to carry out a review of something that's ongoing, which, I mean, the review presumably may well expose deficiencies in the current process, but that wouldn't that wouldn't be much comfort to the people who have been dissatisfied with the way the process has operated up to now. And I, I, I do wonder if it's wise to, to go ahead with such a review at the present time. There may be, may be some other way to, to uh, assess the program without reviewing it. And then if, if we had to put in a, a rider at the end that uh, the review shouldn't hinder the current process, so it's almost making the assumption they're done wrong with the current process. So I have a review. It's, it's, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure, but, but all that's to be honest. What about, what about a form of words, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, any ongoing review must not, um, let me get this right, must not in any way delay the provision of services or payments to those affected by the issues. So, I mean, what, what, what I understand the concern is being outright, basically we are wanting to get services and payments out the door as quickly as possible. But people have also raised with us concerns about the way in which that is happening. Yeah. So this isn't, a, you know, ultimately this is about, you know, delivering goals uh, better. So if we were to say something around, you know, a review of existing mechanisms should not in any way delay or impact upon the provision of um, payments and services that arise as part of the scheme, something like that? Yeah. yeah. I think, sorry, Chair, yeah. But, yeah. but maybe after speaking to the President, if there was, if we could be, see the point that Trevor's making, that you're nearly preempting that this isn't going to find any fault or... Yeah. You're nearly taking the sting out of what you're doing. If there was something that we could do that would be just highlighting the problems that we know exist and asking for those to be addressed rather than a review which is going to be time-consuming and which may well come out and say, no, well, it's been done as best as it could be. And for us to say, well, we know that's not the case. But in the meantime here, we've stalled progress for survivors who are coming to us saying that mm. things aren't happening as quickly as they could be. Yeah, I mean, I, I've met with every sectoral group that's involved in this, and they've all asked for a review of this process. So I would certainly want to put it on record that on behalf of those groups, I would support the review um, because they've asked for it in, in, in every group that we've met. Um, and every meeting that we've been in with them, they have said that they're unhappy with the processes that are being carried out 
by the, um, the, the redress board. So on that basis, I would be supporting that we do um, you know, seek a review. But obviously, if the committee's not agreed on that, then we can't proceed with it. Okay. Well, then, you know, I want to avoid a vote on this, but I think if we're, if we're, uh, I don't, uh, sorry, I, I don't want to misrepresent what I'm. It's not that I'm opposed to a review. I would be more in favour of us trying to do something that more pointedly addresses the issues that the groups have raised, as opposed yeah. to an entire review, which in my mind would lead to more delay. But. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's a more succinct way of doing that or, you know, a, a quicker way of doing that. I know what you're saying in, in terms of, of the request for a review, but whilst the process is ongoing, mm-hmm. stop it midway through, I would be worried about. Oh, yeah, I think that's the key point. What you're trying to say is we're trying to establish if there may be ways to improve the process and to do things better. Yeah. And we can do that alongside the existing processes functioning. And it's a form of wording that could, could be pulled together that is basically cognizant of that fact that what we're trying to do looks uh, in a very real sense, we're glad we're at this point. We're glad, excuse me, we're glad that things are being delivered. But what we're trying to establish as a committee arising out of concerns that have been raised with groups, or sorry, by groups with us. Mm-hmm. I'm establishes, is there a better way to deliver for those groups and individuals? And that's perfectly compatible. That does not require the suspension of the existing processes. It requires us to look at the existing processes to see if there's ways that they could be done better. Could I say, would it work if we added at the very end and calls on the first and deputy first minister to carry out a review of the pro- redress process to be undertaken concurrently with the current process. So, yes. in other words, the review is very much to take place alongside the actual process that is currently in place, continuing. And then, if that review, if that review that we've asked for highlights that there are a series of changes to be made, then they can be implemented once they've realised them, but it doesn't stop the current process at all. It still continues on very much as it is. The review is done alongside that uh, and any learning uh, move across because I suppose as Trevor's pointed out, you know, if you have a review and it highlights problems, uh, then you know the thing really? is it's highlighting problems and we need to address them. We can't then not have the review in case it highlights that there's problems because that's totally counterproductive to fixing the problems that are there. But Emma's absolutely right. We can't have a review that prevents the process from actually taking place. Now, I will ask Michael, maybe just for a bit of advice. I know that the president of the redress board is coming along. It is a quasi-judicial process. It's just the jurisdiction that we would have as a committee to discuss with them any changes that they take? Would there be any obligation on them to address any of the concerns that we would raise with them? That, that's, that, that's a good question, Chair. Um, I, I don't see why they wouldn't take them on board if, if a committee calls on an, on an organisation to, to make changes. Um, as, as to the power to compel somebody to make those particular changes, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but certainly, uh, I'm sure any organisation would be grateful of the committee's suggestions. 
to do so? I would have thought, given that the thought chairman, given that you know, TEO is the sponsor department, we are the TEO committee. I would like to think that if having taken evidence from uh, groups and individuals, we produced a series of recommendations, I would like to think even there would be moral authority, if, if not legal, um, coming from this particular source. Mm-hmm. Trevor, looking in there. Yeah, Jara, <clears throat> I'd be happy enough when we could talk about this until doomsday, you know. I'd be happy enough to run with the suggested wording that you came up with a few minutes ago, but just a short ride at the end of the motion said it shouldn't interfere with the, the current process to date or something like that. I agree with that. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And with the proviso that if we meet the redress board and we are entirely satisfied at the end of that process that they're undertaking everything that we're saying, we still have the opportunity to withdraw the committee motion if we felt that there was sufficient movement at that stage. Is that still something that people would be happy with? Yep, that's fine. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. 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 Emma? Yeah. No, Chair, sorry to... But it's just going back to what Trevor had said there around... The fear would be that if the review happens and they say, no, everything's fine, and then we haven't addressed the the survivor's issues, so, but I suppose that you can't you can't prejudice the result of a review so we would just hope that it would because we that's what i'm you know that's the we know that the issues exist so if there was a way to resolve those without having to go through a process that's going to to take time or delay things but obviously i mean that's that's not maybe our call to make but it was just um so i'm sorry if i'm if i'm not making much sense there (laughs) it's a really important matter we've all been very very uh deeply involved in this process from the start of this committee and we've heard lots of um lots of concern mm-hmm. heard lots of frustrations yeah. and we've heard lots of 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 um you know people want to see that the, the issue dealt with and dealt with properly and we've had the commissioner and we've had mm-hmm. advocates and we've had groups with us so you know it's been a big piece of work for us and we just want to get it right and again anybody mm-hmm. that's watching this to continue to press that message out is that all of us are collectively wanting to get this right uh, in the interest mm-hmm. of and survivors so so you know the fact that it takes us a bit of time to talk about it is good because we're wanting to get it right but michael i think you've enough there hopefully to to get us to to the next stage then okay members thank you for that that's that's been very useful um then we'll move ourselves on then to item eight which is the forward work program um Michael, I know we had discussed stuff this morning whenever we were chatting online. Have you had any updates or progress from then? In, in terms of the concurrent meeting? Yes. Um, there's some rejuggling of a number of, more than one committee, shall we say, in order to line up um, the possibility of, of us using the assembly chamber. Uh, I'm still working on that, uh, but I think we're closer than we have been before. Okay, members, just to update you, and my apologies for keeping a little bit of guessing what that was about. Um, the concurrent meeting between the Finance Committee, the Economy Committee, and ourselves, just as some logistical um, barriers, it was going to be held in room 30, which meant that we would have to select uh, just 12 members that would be able to attend from all 27 members of the committee. Um, however, I had asked Michael this morning maybe just to go back and, and kindly use his 
pressures and best moves there to see if we could get access to the assembly chamber, which would actually allow all 27 members of the committee to be able to attend that. Um, so maybe if we could just leave that as work in action for next week, but that if it doesn't work next week, we will be looking for delegates from, from various parties to attend that. And if we have it sorted for next week, it means that it can be in the assembly chamber and everybody can attend. So work in progress really on that item. Uh, are members happy enough to, to note the rest of the forward work program? Great. Okay. Members, item nine then is correspondence. There are 17 items in pages 49 to 124 of the meeting pack. Uh, the most uh, of interest will be that there is a correspondence from the clerk uh, and member support officer offering uh, member development training on protecting your social media reputation. So not not your reputation, but your social media reputation. And just to highlight that if any member wants to, to participate in that, uh, if you could respond to the clerk on the contact details that are in the correspondence. Is there any other correspondence that members would like to raise? Okay. Then we can move on then to item 10, any other business? I'm good with that. Is anybody else any other business they want to raise? Nope. Okay. Well, then, members, that's us complete for today. Great time and place of next meeting is the 9th of June at 2 p.m. via Starleaf. That's this day week. Thank you very much for everybody's attendance and participation today, and I'll see you all next week. Thank, Thank you, Chair. The Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly.